Well, this morning we're in Romans chapter 4, and uh, this is a terrifying text for me as we navigate through it. Uh, Terrifying because of where Paul is going, and I encourage you, if you leave here thinking, man, that pastor's, you know, antinomian, you know, he's just uh, lawless. Uh, Listen to the other messages in this series. Don't stop here. There's so much that we have to to learn from this text and just want to draw out what Paul is arguing. We're in Romans chapter 4, looking particularly at verses 13 through 22 this morning, looking at the riches of Paul's defending the gospel that he preaches. The gospel of God, the gospel which saves, is a gospel of grace God saves us by His grace. God lavishes His grace upon us, freely pouring out that grace upon sinners so as to draw sinners to Himself. And that gospel of grace is received by faith. Paul has been demonstrating this in this text. Particularly, all of chapter 4 is his theological exposition on the gospel In particular, he is exegeting Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, pulling out ideas and demonstrating by those ideas implications and applications to defend the gospel that he preaches. And he is defending this gospel against a group of people who would believe that you must work your way to eternal life, that you're measured by your good deeds, maybe even your very last good deed. You're measured by how you walked on earth. And it is that righteousness gained in your obedience which merits favor before God by which you would stand before God. Paul is going to destroy that belief. He's going to demonstrate from the Scriptures that that does not hold weight, not only from the Scriptures themselves to the Old Testament, but doesn't demonstrate and reflect the gospel that he proclaimed. Up to this point, Paul has been emphasizing the theme of grace. It started back in chapter 3 and verse 24, when he said this, being justified as a gift by his grace. Jump over into chapter 4 and verse 4. He says that now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a grace. Jump down to verse 16. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Emphasizing over and over again the grace of God in salvation. But that's not the only thread that runs through this. Particularly now, starting in verse 13, he adds another thread, and it's the thread of promise. He emphasizes salvation as a result of a promise, a promise to Abraham, a promise to bless. Notice you see that in verses 13, 14, and 16. In verse 13, for the promise to Abraham. The end of verse 14, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. In verse 16, after that phrase we read is according with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Then down to verse 20 as well, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. 
It was a promise, a promise that God would bless, a promise that he would pour out. That, of course, also goes along with the term that he had been using from verse 3 and following the term which we looked at a few weeks ago, logizomai, credited or reckoned or uh, recognized as. He was regarded with, as we said, 11 times in this chapter, the word logizomai is used emphasizing that one is regarded as having favor or regarded as being righteous. Paul has been demonstrating over and over again the gracious outpouring of God's love upon undeserving sinners, particularly in this case, Abraham. God lavished Abraham with grace. He lavished Abraham with the promise. He lavished Abraham by regarding him as righteous. But right about here, we start to turn and look at the other side of the equation. We've seen the grace side of the equation. Now we turn to the faith side of the equation, the back half of the gospel. To if we say, what is the fundamental truth in one sentence, what is the gospel? We are saved by grace through faith alone. And now Paul is going to pick up the description of faith and begin to contrast faith and law and then move into a discussion of faith altogether. And this is significant here, just to kind of understand and lead up to where Paul has been going in his argument. You remember last week when we were studying through this, particularly verses 9 through 12, Paul demonstrated that Abraham received righteousness apart from the law, and this was proven historically. It's proven historically because Abraham was 99 years old when he was given the covenant and the seal of circumcision. 99 years old, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 and verse 24 tells us that. He was 99 years old, but the promise, the the declaration of his righteousness came back in chapter 15 in verse 6. He was older than 75, but he was younger than 85. Somewhere in that timeline, he was declared as righteous. That is at least 14 years before the sign of the covenant came. At least 14 years before the seal that was put upon him. So that even historically, it was demonstrated that Abraham was righteous before the giving of any law. Of course, that is even hundreds of years before the Mosaic law had ever come into scene. Paul demonstrates from historical context that Abraham received righteousness before the law. He demonstrated it from the cross-reference earlier in verses 6 through 8. He demonstrated it even by the logic. He's demonstrating that if it was a promise, it couldn't be a labor. Now he comes in verses 13 through 15, and he gives three kind of short final statements to completely obliterate any law-keeping to save. Any idea, any sense that one may have that by their obedience they could keep the law and thereby earn salvation is completely obliterated in these final three verses before he turns his attention to the example of faith 
and Abraham. He's demonstrating over and over again what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one would boast. Now we begin to, as we begin to like look at faith and transition to where he's going to go, it leads us to an important question, and the question is, what is faith? What is faith? And I think when considering that very question, the best place to go is just let the scriptures tell us what faith is. Right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This is faith. Faith is to believe what God said. To believe his message. To act on his message. This is faith. We've talked about this before. What is the nature of saving faith? Saving faith has three parts. It is knowledge. That is what the Latin term noticia means understanding. To gain understanding. That is to believe that God is the creator of all things. The knowledge. I, I hear the message that God is the creator of all things. The gaining of that understanding, that knowledge. It is secondly, assent. Or what the Latin's called ascensus. Meaning this affirmation. I affirm that knowledge as being true. And then the third element is trust, fiducia, the bending of the will to that knowledge in a sense. This morning, you are exercising that kind of faith right now. You are sitting in chairs which you believe are able to hold you up. You understand the material strength of metal. You understand the comforts there. And intellectually, you know the components are able to hold you. You also understand that engineers have crafted that chair to which it can hold your weight. So you trust and you have bent your will to sit down in that chair and you are confidently living in faith at this moment as you sit in those chairs. I, not so much standing up here, but you, as you exercise faith, all three components, knowledge, assent, and trust are are what's engaged in saving faith. It's that kind of faith that we're going to see demonstrated in Abraham here and in his life and practice. The kind of faith that knew, assented, and yielded to the truth. But before Paul gets to that element to describe the outworking of faith in Abraham, he gives these, in verses 13 through 15, three kind of um, bombs that he drops on anyone who would hold on to law-keeping. Anyone who would be inclined to think that they could earn salvation by keeping of the law, Paul just gives three final little jabs at them. And that's what we want to understand. Because you might think for a second, this is a first century problem. 
It's a, a Jewish problem, a Pharisee problem. It's not a problem for me today. And I think you, you might be wrong. I think Spurgeon is right when he says this. He says, uh, if we were on a hundred-mile journey, we would be inclined to let God carry us for 99 miles and let us walk the last mile. I think that's what happens in the human heart. We are inclined to think so much of, our, uh, of God's work. We want to say, yeah, God's done great work for us, and we'll, we'll let you carry the bulk of the work, but let me show you, Lord, by my obedience, that I can take the final steps for you and get across the finish line. And we do this in one of two ways. If you would think just by your own personal analysis, think about how you evaluate your own Christian life. You might think about it like this. You might be operating in such a way that you believe your salvation is dependent on your perfect obedience. You might be living in that way. What would that look like? It would look like this. Well, every time you're walking according to the commands that you know you ought to be following, you feel great confidence in your salvation, so you're on a spiritual high. But as soon as you sin, you are now doubting your salvation, and you are now questioning yourself in, your, in a spiritual low. And you're constantly measured by these huge ups and downs. I must not be saved today. I have to get resaved. You're constantly living in this form of fear that you have lost all your salvation because there is sin in your life. Or you are the one who quickly judges another when you see sin and transgression revealed in them. The one who has professed faith, your immediate response is, they must not be saved. Because I see in their life a, a transgression. And therefore, there's the tendency within ourselves to measure one another by the perfection of their f- obedience. I would say this is a misunderstanding of the work of the law. It was brought out recently to me by a friend who was asking about the sin unto death in First John Five, you know that passage that says there is a sin that leads unto death. I pray you don't, you know that one doesn't fall into that sin. So what is that sin? And he he not only asked that. If you want to know, you can go to my series on First John. But particularly what he asked, which was significant, was if somebody died while sinning, does it mean they were never saved? And I brought up the scenario to him. So what are you are you saying to me? If a husband got mad at his wife. And he's yelling, you know, unrighteous. You know, he's in sinful anger. He's yelling. And a blood vessel burst in his brain. And he died on the spot. Are you suggesting that he committed a sin unto death and that he wasn't a believer? So I can't believe that. The reason why I can't believe that is this. Because I cannot believe that my salvation is dependent on perfect obedience. See, my salvation is not dependent on my perfect obedience. It's dependent on His perfect obedience. It is the perfect obedience of Christ, which we lay hold of, we put our confidence in, which delivers us. It is the grace of God found through Jesus Christ that rescues us. Yeah, the righteous sin. And yeah, the righteous may sin and immediately die in their sin. I've seen many examples of that. 
I've seen those who have professed faith in Christ, turned their life around, began to follow Christ, only to return to a former sin and overdose and die on the spot. The Lord may take someone who is struggling into sin. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. Read 1 Corinthians 12 and recognize those who, who were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And it says they fell asleep, they died. Sin may immediately lead to death, but when we begin to measure one another by our own perfect obedience, we are at that point believing my ability to keep the law is what saves me. And that is a form of Christian legalism. There's another error that is committed, and it is the error of thinking, all right, sure, Christ covers me, he does everything, but I cooperate with him. It's a diffusion of Christ's righteousness and my righteousness that together we work together whereby we cross the finish line and are saved. This, of course, is the Catholic error of confusing justification and sanctification and merging them together, neither of which work. And they don't work because of what is demonstrated in this passage before us. It is impossible for the law to save. You cannot do enough good works to save yourself. You cannot be persistent enough to save yourself. We are saved entirely by grace through faith alone. It's important for us to understand this. That We have to understand the place of faith, the place of God's work, and the understanding of our relationship to the law. And I just want to make the very argument that Paul is making here. You and I cannot rely on the law at all to save. How do we know that? Because what Paul says here in verses 13 through 15, three kind of concluding arguments. In these three arguments, you can notice in the English text, just as well as in the Greek text, each one starts with a four, four For the promise, verse 13. For if those, verse 14. For the law, verse 15. In the Greek, it's the same word as there. It's the word gar. It's a conjunction tying this. These are final arguments. Three final concluding arguments, all starting with the same conjunction. For. For the promise. And in these three final statements, as if each one of them, he is completely removing any reliance upon the law altogether. The law, and here's the the three arguments. The law cannot receive a promise. The law, in fact, nullifies a promise, and the law stirs up wrath. These are the final three arguments that Paul makes here before he turns and looks at the example of faith in Abraham. The first, the law cannot receive a promise. What does he mean here? Notice what he says in verse 14, or verse 13. For if the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's argument is this. When God gave righteousness to Abraham, that righteousness didn't come from the law. It came by faith. 
The promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations, the promise that he would have a land, the promise that all the worlds would be blessed through him was a promise that was given to Abraham before the law. It wasn't in cooperation with the law. It was before the law. Now, let me just show you these promises. Let's take a little journey through Genesis. Let's start in Genesis chapter 12. And let me just highlight a few key things for you. Let's start in Genesis chapter 12. And as you do this, as we read through this, two things I want you to think through as I'm reading these passages and drawing up. First of all, I want you to see the promises that God says, says and then continually reiterates. And then second of all, I want you to see how a law-abiding Jew would interpret some of these passages. Notice, starting in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, this is known as the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And here's what Moses records for us. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall, or so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and lot with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Again, this is the giving, the first giving of God's promise to Abraham. It's known in, again as the Abrahamic covenant. God promised to bless Abraham. Promised and he called him to leave his father's home in Haran and to head out into a land that he was going to show him. And what you see in these verses, one, there is a land promise. There is a promise that he is going to be made a great nation. And there is a promise that he is going to be given a great name. And of course, this last promise, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is the promise not just extending from Abraham, but to every family to the ends of the earth shall be blessed. Again, this is the start, God's promise. Nothing done on Abraham's part to earn it. Nothing that he had done up to this point. It came, first of all, as God's outpouring of love to Abram. Turn over to Genesis chapter 18. See the promise coming again. Genesis chapter 18, though, has spent some time since the giving of the promise, over 25 years. This promise still hasn't been fulfilled up to this point, and Abram, now Abraham, and Sarah are much older. And as they're there, they receive this word from messengers starting in verse 9 of chapter 18. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There, in the tent. 
And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the point... At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. I notice the promise here in verses 16, following 16 through 19. Then the men rose up there, And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now what you have here in this marvelous story, first of all, the account of God fulfilling his promise. I am going to bring an heir through you, Abraham. Through your wife, Sarah, an heir will come, a descendant will come, and he is going to be the one who are going to make a great nation. It's through you. I'm going to fulfill this promise. Even in your old age, even as you are past your prime, even as you are no longer able, as verse 11 indicates, Sarah was past childbearing. I'm going to fulfill my promise. And it's going to be next year you're going to see And then he reiterated in verse 18 that he is going to make, again, Abraham a great and mighty nation. So from the standpoint of the promise, this is another reiteration of the promise. It hasn't been forgotten. Even though the fulfillment had been delayed up to this point, he hasn't forgotten the promise. He continues to reiterate it. Turn over to chapter 22. See this again. Isaac comes. Chapter 22, but now God does the impossible, the seeming improbable. He calls Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. And so Abraham leads his son out and he binds his son and he places him on the altar and he's about to, to, to raise up his knife and to take the life of his son to which then Genesis twenty-two fifteen through 19 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, reiterated the promise. You will be blessed. The nations will be blessed. You will multiply. One more passage to look at over in chapter 26. The continuation of the promise to the next generation. Chapter 26. Isaac spoken to. It says there's a famine in the land, they're being driven, but jump down to verse 3. The Lord is speaking here, telling him to sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath, notice, which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is the reiteration of the promise to the very next generation, to Isaac. See, this is again God continuing to fulfill his promise. Now notice, if you were reading this through the lens of Jewish eyes. Notice the very next verse there, verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Why is he blessed? Well, he's blessed because he obeyed me and he kept my laws. Turn back to chapter 22. You see this also come out in 22. In verse 18, Genesis, Genesis 22:18, "In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, notice, because you have obeyed my voice." They're blessed because he obeyed. The Jewish mind would say, "This must be it. He, he obeyed, he followed the commands. That is why he's a blessed. He kept the law. That is their argument. Now we turn back to Romans chapter 4 and we see Paul's response to all of that. Paul's response is that Abraham could not have been trusting in the law because if he was trusting in the law, then the promise is nullified and faith is nullified. He couldn't possibly be obeying from the law Again, that's what verse 13, back to verse 13 is this. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's response is that Abraham obeyed, yes, but he obeyed out of faith. Abraham was walking in faith. Abraham was walking not in obedience to the law, but in obedience of faith. That's how Abraham navigated. 
He believed God, and that's what made him an heir. He believed the promise, and the promise which was told to him from the beginning, from the age of 75 and on, the promise that passed from him to the next generation, that same consistent promise he followed in faith. I think I can illustrate it like this, what Paul is saying to them. It's not by law, it was by faith. It would be like this. Assume for a second that a billionaire like Jeff Bezos came in here and he said to you, I promise to give you a hundred million dollars if you fly to the sun, touch it, and come back. Now there are two problems with that statement. The first problem is this. Jeff, you're not making a promise to me, you're giving me a job offer. The job offer is $100 million to fly to the sun, touch it, and come back. And the second problem is this. You're giving me an impossible task. You go touch the sun, you'll be burned up, you'll never get back. You know, it's an impossible task. And it's not a promise, it's a job offer. That's the, same, that's the argument that Paul is using here. If you are saved by the keeping of the law, then it isn't a promise, it isn't grace, it's now works, it's a wage, it's a job. And then on top of that, you're asking for an impossible job, the keeping of the law perfectly. This promise to Abraham and to his descendants was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's the only way that Abraham would be able to obtain it. And by the way, this is why I love the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrew writer just glossily looks over. Sarah believed. Sarah had no doubt. Sarah was faithful, believed, and God blessed her, and she conceived. And you go read the Genesis 18 account, and you see her struggling See, you're doubting. Indeed, his both was true. Yes, she struggled, but yes, she believed and she yielded in faith and she entrusted herself to the promise and the Lord delivered. It was faith that led Sarah through and it was faith that led Abraham through. Faith was driving them. The law is impossible to receive a promise by law. The law only knows rewards and consequences. Doesn't know promise. Law only knows the righteous standard. It doesn't know a promise at all. So what Paul makes in this first point here in verse 13 is there is no possible way that Abraham was driven by the law, otherwise, any promise that God would make is nullified. It's useless. Second principle he draws out in verse 14. For if there the second principle is this, the law nullifies a promise, but he states it plainly, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If you go out and you obey, and by your obedience you are made an heir, then there's no reason to believe, it's just nullified, it's made void. No need for God to give grace. No need to make a promise. No need for him to credit because you just earn it by keeping of the law. 
Faith is nullified by the law. The promise is nullified by the law. So then you have this confusion. What is it that God would be promising to Abraham multiple times? As we saw in chapter 12, chapter 18, chapter 22, chapter 26. What, what is he promising over and over again if it was a matter of keeping the law? It's nullified. Again, if I promised you money for doing a task, it's, I, I'm, it's not a promise. It's a job offer. But what Paul's been emphasizing is that's what salvation is by grace. It's the fulfillment of a promise by God. It is righteousness credited to us through the generous, magnanimous love of God to us. The law nullifies those promises altogether. So we aren't uh, saved by the law. We're not looking to law-keeping to justify us before God because as soon as we rely upon our law-keeping, we have nullified the promise and we have nullified the grace of God. It's entirely of His grace. I think secretly, though, we want the law. You say, no, I don't want the law. I say, you You do. Here's why. Because it's so much easier. So what do you mean it's so much easier? I keep failing. Yeah, but imagine yourself in Sarah's place and Abraham's place, over 100 years old, and you're waiting for a child, and you're going to say that child is going to come because God promised it. First of all, I'm tired at 46 thinking about another child, let alone at 100 years old thinking about another child. To think that God would allow, God would accomplish that by faith, trusting this is what he is going to accomplish. It's easier to walk by law. It's easier to have a set of rules to say, this is what I have to do to keep those set of rules. Okay, I'm comfortable because I kept these set of rules. It's hard to believe by faith. So much easier to create some rules. It's much harder to walk in faith. But to create those rules then and set them up and think those rules will make us right, we have to realize, verse 14 says, then it nullifies and voids faith and promise. Completely obliterates it. To which one more little point that Paul brings in, verse 15. The law stirs up wrath. That's all the law does. It stirs up wrath. For the law brings about wrath. But there is no law, or where there's no law, neither is there a violation. What he's saying is that the law only produces condemnation. The law is really, really good at exposing sin. It does that very well. Holds the standard of righteousness perfectly, and it reveals the failure where we fall short. It's interesting about this particular phrase, violation, at the end of verse 15, where there is no law, there also is no violation. That word violation could be translated as well as trespass or transgression. It's a very interesting word, a different word from the normal word for sin. The normal word for sin would be the idea of just missing the mark. You know, you're falling short, you miss it. The word transgression here speaks of the active transgression. If I illustrate it, I'd illustrate it like this. 
you were driving into church today and you're using one of our many marvelous roads here and uh, traveling in, uh, you didn't know the speed limit and an officer pulled you over and they said, did, did you know that the speed limit is 45 and you're traveling 55? Uh, no, I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. There could be there a sin of omission. You, you didn't know, but you, you still transgressed, still uh, responsible for it, but there was an ignorance level there. Well, let's just say the very next week you drove in, but now you're driving again 75 on the 45 road, and the same police officer pulls you over and says, did you know that this is a 45? You can't argue anymore, I didn't know. And I remember, but you can't argue any longer, I didn't know. There is a willful transgression of that command. That's the idea here. Where the law comes, it reveals willful transgression. The law comes and reveals what the standard is and it reveals of the heart the willful violation which then brings out the wrath. The law only reveals wrath and condemnation. It doesn't reveal grace. It doesn't reveal a promise. It doesn't reveal mercy. It only knows a righteous standard and condemnation for keeping, not keeping that standard. The law is immovable. The law is unchangeable. The law knows no mercy. All it knows is the perfect standard. I mean, think about it. If the law was what led Abraham to be considered righteous, what about that little deal with Hagar? And what about Sarah's laughing in the tent. Would that not be an example of unbelief? Would that not be a doubting of God's promises? It would be. See, the law knows only a perfect righteousness and a perfect standard. The law cannot receive a promise. The law, in fact, nullifies faith and the promise. The law only stirs up wrath. To which then Paul's concluding response, verse 16 For this reason, then, it's by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There can only be one way. Salvation by grace through faith. And the proof of that is in the example of Abraham. That example, which we will look at starting next week. Let me just summarize simply like this for us. Abraham proves to be for us the marvelous example because Abraham believed God and he left his father's homeland and went to a land he did not know where. And Abraham believed that he would be blessed by God and be the father of many nations and of a great nation. And he went out following the Lord's directing. And Abraham, by faith, believed that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him, and so he persevered in his faith in pursuing. And Abraham, though he could not see that land, waited in trusting that God would supply that. And it was by that faith that Abraham was credited as righteous before God. 
It was by that same faith that Abraham offered up his one and only child at over a hundred years old, expecting that God would raise that child from the dead if he would perish. And it was by faith that Abraham walked after God. The law didn't produce that. The law didn't produce that kind of faith. It's his response to God's promise, the response to God's grace. So when we navigate as believers and we operate through life, we're not looking for the perfection of our obedience to be cause us to enter into eternal life. We're looking at the perfection of his obedience credited to us. It's Christ's perfect obedience credited to us, which merits us the righteousness to be able to stand before God. Every response after that from us is simply an act of faith, yielding to his perfect will in all things. And we're going to see that. Starting from verse 16 and following, Paul begins to demonstrate the outworking of faith. We do not walk under the law of Moses. We live under the law of faith, the principle of faith ruling and reigning in our hearts. And get ready, brothers and sisters, because the path of sanctification is coming before us here in Romans, and indeed it is sweet. But my hope is, as we go through this series, that your utter confidence would be in the gospel that Paul preached, a gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, it is so encouraging to know that even today, as we stand in this faith, we don't stand in something new, something different, invented by the wisdom of man today, but we rest in that same principle of faith that has been exercised for generations, for thousands and thousands of years we go all the way back to the father of faith, Abraham, and find that we, in our belief, we who exercise faith, we who believe upon your promises are exercising the same kind of faith that Abraham did. We believe in the grace that you've lavished us. We believe your promises. We believe that we can be reconciled to you through your son. We believe that our sins are covered and removed and taken out of the way as far as the east is from the west. We believe that we have been made sons of God and such we are. We believe we've been set free from the bondage of sin and we walk now in newness of life. We believe that we are members of one another to encourage one another and build one another up. We believe in the one who is the head of the church and we look to him to lead us in all things We believe that you will come and set up your kingdom and reign and you will accomplish all your good purposes here on earth so that all the nations will turn to Christ and be blessed. So all of these things we believe because you have revealed them to us through your word. So we pray then, may our faith be strengthened as we spend time studying your scripture and may our faith be encouraged as we minister to one another. And when we drift, may we be called back And we quickly confess any unbelief, any wayward ways. 
not because we depend on a performance, but because we desire in all things to have a faith that is growing and maturing and is manifest in us and among us. Thank you for this rich study from your word. It's in your name we pray, amen.